Lord. So let me just pray for us uh, as we carry on with our service. God, thank you so much that uh, there are times when, uh, yeah, we just, we need you. And as Daniel said, we're sort of in that, in between that gray zone between um, prayers that you've answered and prayers that we're waiting for you to answer. And so, Lord, I pray that as most of us are living in that gray zone right now, that um, you might even say something to us through your word or through our service this morning today. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing in our series looking at the New Testament book of Acts, which is the Acts of the Apostles. And to do that is actually to look at one of the most extraordinary things to ever happen in the history of the world. Um, the starting and the spreading of the Christian church. Because when we talk about that, we're talking about a very small group of people, originally about 120 men and women in a small, occupied, non-influential nation who started a movement that spread across the ancient world and is still to this day the largest movement, the largest collection of people in the modern world. And so the question is, how did they do that? Uh, if you've ever started a business, if you've ever started an organization, a group of any kind, you know that growth, it's hard to maintain. Uh, yet this group of unschooled, ordinary men and women, they, they somehow managed to do it. And so the question, as you read through this book, is how did they do that? Because not only did the church start, but it thrived and it spread across the world. It was extraordinary. It was actually, it was explosive. And it lasted now for two millennia. And despite what you might think, it's actually, it is growing rapidly today all over the world. And so how did they do that? Well, it's important we look at this because as they did, they faced tremendous challenges, challenges from outside, uh, political challenges, social challenges, religious, economic pressures, all of them with the attempt to try and shut the early church down. But also they faced internal challenges, racial challenges, cultural challenges, emotional, relational, economic challenges. And these were actually threats from inside the church. And one of the things I love about the book of Acts and, and the New Testament is that it, it, it never really glosses over these challenges, uh, especially the internal conflicts. Most of the New Testament letters are written about internal conflicts within the church. And I find it really heartening to know that even the earliest Christians, the one who many of them actually knew Jesus personally, uh, at least the leaders of the early church, they knew him personally, they walked with him, they lived with him, they actually struggled to get along. And I actually find that kind of heartening. And perhaps some of you who are here today, maybe you're not a Christian, or maybe you went away from the church for a while, but you're back today, and you're not sure how it's going to go. And you're saying to yourself, you know, I've been so hurt by the church in the past, either directly or indirectly. Conflicts in the church are the reason maybe you left the church in the past and you were nervous to come back. Now, if that is you, I do want to try and set just a couple of expectations. Because if your expectation for the church and the people in the church is to be sinless, to be perfect and harmonious at all times, if the bar is set that high, you'll always be disappointed. I love those words from G.K. Chesterton that Daniel quoted. What's wrong with the world? Me. <laughs> because every church... Actually, not, not only every church, but every organization, every company, every group, whether it's a religious group or a hiking group, all of them are made up with people like you and me. People who have diverse opinions, diverse backgrounds, diverse needs. And every group that has ever existed and ever will exist will have conflict in one way or another. I had a professor when I was studying for 
ministry who used to always say, hey guys, if you find the perfect church, don't go there. You'll screw it up. <laughs> and I, what he was trying to say with that was, I think, two things. Number one, there is no perfect church. You're never going to find it. But if you do, if it is out there, you're going to be the one to bring it down. And that's why I love the book of Acts, because it's constantly showing us that there really was no golden age of the church. Like, you can't look back and be like, oh, that's when everything was great. There, were no, there is no golden age. The church is always going to have conflict. And yet, what we see in this book and the other New Testament letters is how a church can actually work through its conflict in such a way that the church will thrive and spread. Uh, so let's look at this passage because in it is a model for how a church not only uh, can deal with internal relational conflict, but also how that church can thrive and spread. Uh, and so we're going to look at this in three parts. Part one, committed to care for one another. Part two, committed to spiritual growth. And part three, committed to Christ-likeness. Uh, so part one, committed to care for one another. And we see their commitment actually comes out, like we see this commitment uh, raised to the surface as a result of a conflict. Um, many years ago, actually the very first time I ever left the country, I went with a church group uh, to the Czech Republic in Central Europe, and we were spending a week doing a camp. And the camp was set out to do two things. So uh, teenagers from the Czech Republic would sign up to camp because they wanted to learn a little bit more about English, and because it's such an atheistic country, they know nothing about Christianity, so they're like, we want to learn about your faith, too. And so we had this camp. It's the first time I was ever in the country. There's 50 Czech high school students that come to camp. And every night I'm supposed to give like a short talk about the basics of Christianity. What is it? You know, why do Christians believe this? And so I'm giving these, this short talk. And um, it's about 8 million degrees outside. Uh, and it's humid. And there's mosquitoes. And we're meeting outside um, on this hillside. And sort of up the hillside and around us is a cow pasture full of cows. So it's a great context to try and give a talk because I'm also being translated into Czech. So I would like say half a sentence and then the translator would say half a sentence and none of my jokes worked and the whole thing was going horrible. And all of a sudden I start hearing from the Czech students, I start hearing them go, boo, boo. And I was like, this is going real bad. I better speed this up. But then I was like, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna double down. I'm gonna tell my best jokes. And I just, I keep hearing boo. So I get to the end of the talk, and the, the night's over, and I go to the, the Czech leaders of the camp, and I was like, what was that about? And I was like, they booed me the whole time. And the, the Czech leader of the camp, he, he kind of laughed. He goes, Ken, they weren't booing you. And I was like, well, yeah, they were. And he goes, no, in America, when you make the noise of a cow, you say moo, but in the Czech Republic, we say boo. So they were just <laughs> responding to the cows the whole time. <laughs> So that was my first exposure to a very drastic cultural difference. Uh, and it was actually causing this conflict inside of me uh, and maybe with them, because I'm like, these students are terrible and I don't want to talk to them. It's like creating a conflict. Um, well, that kind of conflict is that cultural difference is what was causing the conflict inside the church in its earliest days. Because remember, the very first church was made up of people from almost... Uh, almost every nation on earth. We get a list back in Acts chapter 2. It's Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya. There's Romans, there's Cretans, there's Arabs. And this is the diverse makeup of the very first Christian church. 
So imagine that, people from every nation on earth. And of course the question is, can a diverse church full of people who think differently, who speak differently, who eat differently, who live differently, who make cow noises differently, can that church survive? That's the question you're asking as you're reading through Acts at this point. Is it possible to fulfill the mission that Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, go and reach all the nations? Can we do it? For is it possible for a multi-ethnic church to thrive? And this is the question that Luke is attempting to answer by including the story, because here's what's happening in the story. There were two groups of people in the church who were not getting along. Uh, both groups, by the way, were ethnically the same. They were both ethnically Jewish, uh, and both people from both groups had become Christians. They joined the very first church. And so one group is what Luke called the Hebraic Jews. They were basically Aramaic-speaking Jews. Uh, Aramaic is a derivative of the Hebrew language. And so they're Aramaic-speaking Jews who are culturally from Israel, most likely even from the city of Jerusalem. And so they are living in their home culture, speaking their home language, uh, and they've been doing that since birth. The other group in the church, Luke calls Hellenistic Jews. Now remember, they're also ethnically Jewish, so they have the same ethnicity, but they likely spoke multiple languages and were from all the nations that were at one time ruled by Greece. And so they're Jewish in ethnicity, but they think like and they act like Greeks. In other words, ethnically the same, but culturally very different from one another. In verse 1, it says that a complaint went out from the Hellenistic Jews about the Hebraic Jews. Now, just stop there for one second, because if you know your Old Testament, uh, then you know the Old Testament law, which both uh, groups being Jewish would have also had a great respect for, and they would have done their best to follow. And uh, the, the Old Testament law says very specifically that to honor God, to honor him in your society, there are four groups of people that you are especially supposed to look after, because they're more vulnerable. They're more likely to be taken advantage of. They're more likely to be neglected. And the four groups are, the, are these. The orphan, the immigrant, the poor, and the widow. All four of those groups needed special care. This is what God has been saying since the beginning. For instance, widows in the ancient Near East, in this world where this is going on, they had no way of getting income. They couldn't just go out and get a job. That's not how the culture worked back then. So they needed help. And our text actually refers to what the ancient Jews would do to look after widows. Did you see that in verse 1? It talks about the daily distribution of food. And the custom was that each day someone in your community would go around to different houses and they would gather up food and necessities for the widows and the orphans and the immigrants and the poor. And that food would be then distributed to them. Uh, and so, uh, by the way, that word there in verse 1 where it says daily distribution of food, that word uh, is the Greek word diakonia. Okay, so hold on to that right now. Uh, and I want you to hold on to that because we're going to come back to that later. But this is talking about a daily diakonia, a daily distribution of food. Now the complaint is one group of widows in the church is not being looked after the same as another. And specifically, it's the Hellenistic widows that aren't being looked after, which means the group that's being neglected uh, in the daily distribution within the church is actually like a, a kind of twofer. <laughs> because they're immigrants and they're widows. So they need to be doubly looked after, and it says they're being neglected. So that's the problem happening in the church. There is a division in the church between natural-born citizens and immigrants. So what do they do? 
How do they keep this conflict from growing up and causing a major division and split along cultural lines? Well, verse 2, here's the answer. And at first, you're going to get real annoyed. Are you ready? The apostles say, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. So you hear that and you think, okay, guys, on the surface, it seems like you're saying, don't bother us with your minor squabbles about who's eating what. So just, you know, leave us alone. Uh, we've got preaching to do, which is far more important than eating. But let's slow down. Let's look more carefully. Uh, because at the very start of verse 2, notice, it, notice who they gather together. Notice who the leaders of the church, the apostles, notice who they gather together. It says, the 12, the apostles gather all the disciples. And the word that Luke uses there could be translated as the fullness, the amplitude, the magnitude, the multitude, the crowd of disciples. In other words, they got the whole church together. The whole church comes together, everyone together. And so this issue is not unimportant to the apostles. In fact, it was so important that they called a whole church meeting, they called the magnitude of disciples together to try and solve the issue. That's how important this issue was to them. But let's keep going slowly through this because they say in verse 2, it would be wrong to neglect the ministry of the word. Now you see that word neglect there, the word that Luke uses, it's different from the word in verse 1, um, where he, he says overlooked, but it carries the exact same meaning, where it says the, the Hellenistic Jews were being overlooked. It's the same kind of meaning. In other words, what Luke is doing here is he's putting the preaching of the word of God on the same level as caring for the widows, that both are important. Neither one can be neglected. And so there's a dual importance here, and that dual importance becomes much more clear when you remember that word I told you earlier, diakonia. Remember that word from before, the daily diakonia, the daily distribution of food. Well, that same word shows up uh, two more times in this passage. One is here in verse 2, where the apostles say, it would be wrong for us to neglect the word in order to wait on tables. The word Luke uses for waiting on tables is the verb form of that same word diakonia, the distribution of food, waiting on tables. And that word comes up one more time in verse 4, where the apostles say they will give their attention to the ministry of the word. You see that in verse 4? The ministry of the word. The word translated there as ministry is diakonia. And so read that in one direction. And verse 4 is saying the apostles want to give their attention to the distribution of the word. Same word. But read that back the other way. And what Luke is saying in verse 1 is the daily ministry of food. And in verse 2, the ministry of the table. In other words, Luke is highlighting a dual importance of both care and preaching. Both are ministries. Both are important in the thriving and the flourishing and the spreading of the church. So much so that they bring the whole church together. And then in verse 3, the solution that is offered is to have the whole church appoint seven men who the apostles will, in verse 3, turn this responsibility over to them. And that word responsibility is also the word necessity. In other words, the apostles are saying the care of the vulnerable in the church, no matter their cultural background, no matter what they look like, no matter what they sound like, is a necessity. We will turn this necessity over to them. And so, yes, the preaching of the word is important. And yes, liturgy is important and worship is important, but so is hospitality. So is caring for the sick and the vulnerable. 
the lonely, the weak, the immigrant, the poor, the orphan, the widow. Now, there's one more thing I only have time to briefly touch on, but notice the names of the seven men who were appointed to take on the responsibility. Take a look at those names. Every single one of those names is actually a Greek name. In other words, a Hellenistic name. Now, scholars debate whether or not they're all Hellenistic. In other words, are they all immigrants? But we know for sure at least one of them is an immigrant who is not even ethnically Jewish. And that is Nicholas, it says, who is from Antioch, who is a convert to Judaism. So he's neither ethnically Jewish, nor is he culturally from Israel. He is a total outsider to this culture. And this is important to pause and look at because from the earliest days, the church leadership has been multi-ethnic. Now that's not to say every church has to have multi-ethnic leadership, but if your local church community is multi-ethnic, then a church's leadership should reflect that. Now, we're part of the way there in our church's board of trustees, but we have a little ways to go in our eldership. So that's something you can pray for, for our church, that not only would our trustees be representative of the ethnicities within our church, but that our elders would as well. Let's just try and apply this one more way before we move on. What this is showing us is a church that only preaches is not a biblical church. A biblical church is aware of the needs of the vulnerable and works to meet those needs, actually sets aside and commissions leadership of the church who are qualified to make sure that those needs are met. Now, it might be that you were in a church that, that didn't do this very well. I'm not 100% sure that we do this very well, but... We do what we can with the little resources that we have. But here's what I think the starting point is. Here's how a church, I think, can live this out. If you see a need, meet that need. And if that need is too big to meet on your own, then do what they did in this story. Bring it to the leadership of the church so that just like in this passage, we can organize ourselves in a way that the whole church can help meet those needs. And it was acting that way that kept the first church from dividing along ethnic lines, cultural or nationalistic lines. But this then leads us to part two, because a biblical church is also not uh, a church that only meets physical needs. A biblical church is one that is committed to spiritual growth through the teaching of the word and through prayer. So we've seen part one, they're committed to care for one another. But now part two, they're committed to spiritual growth. Uh, now, I have killed every plant that I've ever owned in my entire life. Uh, these are fake plants for a reason. Uh, the only way that plants stay alive in my home today is because Emmy looks after them. Uh, I have a, a study at home, an office, a home office, and I'm, not, I'm no longer allowed to have plants in my study because I kill them. Now, I just want to be clear, it's not a malicious killing. I'm not walking around with a machete just chopping off the top of plants. It's just that I neglect them. I don't look after them with any kind of persistency or steadfastness. But if you come to my home, there are some beautiful plants around the house. And that is because my wife, with persistency and steadfastness, waters them and pulls the dead leaves off and looks after them. And so the only reason we have anything resembling a plant inside of our house uh, is because of Emmy's obstinate persistence to take care of them. And this is what the apostles are saying when they say in verse 2, that they don't want to neglect the ministry of the word. You see, I'm always neglecting my plants. And the word there for neglect in verse 2, it's also the word for abandon, to forsake, to leave behind. 
And so what the apostles are saying is there will be no abandoning, no forsaking, no leaving behind the word of God for another necessity, another responsibility. But more than that, verse 4, they say we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now we already know the word there for ministry, that's diakonia. But the word for giving our attention, it's a word that we've seen multiple times in the the book of Acts already. It's actually one of Luke's favorite words so far. And it is the word for obstinate persistence. And we've seen it already in chapter 1 where it says they continually met together, uh, met to pray, they continually prayed together. That's that word. It's obstinate persistence in prayer. And then in chapter 2, it says they continually gathered together in one another's homes. It's that obstinate persistence. It's over and over and over again. The idea is of steadfastness. Uh, Years ago, my wife's family moved from another country. They were immigrants uh, into our country, and they moved in with us when they came. And uh, in the time, the first month or so, uh, when they came, they had the right to work, but they didn't speak English very well, so it was very hard for them to find work. And I remember one day, Emmy's mom had asked me to drop her off uh, on this street near our house. We lived in a suburban area. As you know how those suburban streets go, it's like big box store, then another one, then another one, then another one. So it's like Lowe's, Walmart, Home Depot, and then they just do it over again. And then there's all the little ones in between. So she asked me to take her into town and to drop her off, uh, her, and, her and my father-in-law, drop them off um, just at the sort of bottom of that road. And they said, we'll call you when we're ready for you to come get us. I was like, great, see you in a few hours. I went to do some work. Emmy happens to be driving down that road later in the afternoon, and she sees them. And there's no sidewalks on this road. Like, it's the busy suburban area. So they're just kind of walking in the ditch along. And Emmy sees them, and she, like, swings the car over and pulls over. And she's like, what are you doing? And my mother-in-law said, well, I've been out trying to find a job. And so she went to every single store, and she walked in, and she said, hello, this is the, her level of English. Hello, I am Drita. You give me job? And then they'd say no. And then they'd walk out and they'd walk to the next door. And she'd say, hello, I am Drita. You give me job? And she did this over and over and over and over again until finally one store was like, yes, we'll give you a job. Obstinate persistence. Carrying on, continuing until the thing happens. That's the picture here. The apostles will daily, with great persistence, give themselves to the ministry, to the distribution of prayer and sharing, teaching, preaching the word of God. In other words, just as important to the vitality of the church as the daily distribution, the daily diaconia of food, is the daily distribution, the daily diaconia of prayer and the word of God. Both of them going hand in hand. Now, it should go actually without saying, but clearly from the time of the very first church in the history of the world, a biblical church is a church that is committed to prayer and the word of God, particularly the leaders of that church. But remember from chapter 2, one more place where this word for obstinate persistence, steadfastness, one other place where it shows up is Acts 2.42. And this is actually talking about the members of the church, Acts 2.42, we can put that on the screen. It says, they devoted, that's the word, devoted, obstinate persistence. They steadfastly, obstinately persisted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Those four things. And so look at that. Apostles' teaching, that's the word. Fellowship, that's the unity, which is what Acts chapter 6, the issue is going on. They're facing a disunity in the church. Breaking of of bread, if you remember, that's a technical term for the Lord's Supper. So it's actually talking about the worship of the church, the gathered worship. And then fourthly, prayer. 
And so not only are the leaders committed to these things, steadfastly, obstinately persistent in them, the word of God, unity in the church, worship and prayer, but the entire church is obstinately persistent in them. And let me just show you this, because when a church does this, is steadfastly committed to these things, the word of God, unity in the church, worship and prayer. Look at this little theme that Lucas threaded together for us. Back in chapter 2, when it first describes his commitment to these things, at the very end of that description, it says this in Acts chapter 2, verse 47. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And now, here, when the fellowship, in other words, the unity of the church is under threat, when they double down on their steadfast commitment to these four things, they restore the unity the fellowship by appointing the seven to make sure everyone is cared for, and the apostles double down on their commitment to prayer and the word of God. What's the result? Acts chapter 6, verse 7. You can look at it if you still have it open. It says, So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And so do you see the thread? A biblical church is committed to care for one another. In other words, unity, fellowship and spiritual growth, the word of God, prayer, and worship. And the result of those commitments, that steadfastness, that obstinate persistence in those things, the result is that not only does the church grow by reaching new people, but it actually, look at this in verse 7, begins to reach those who you think would be unreachable. And that's what Luke points out here when he says a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. He's not talking about Christian priests. There were none. That wasn't a thing. This is talking about religious people who wanted nothing to do with Jesus when he was alive. These priests, in fact, are likely those who were part of the crowd of people who were there saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, because this is only months after that's happened. And here it says, Luke actually connects for us the commitment of the church of caring for one another, fellowship, unity, and spiritual growth, the word of God, worship, and prayer. He connects those things thriving in the church directly to the church growing and reaching the unreachable. And so as we continue to build our church, this is what we need to be committed to. We need leaders who are committed to keeping the unity of the church, meeting the needs of the vulnerable, no matter their background. That's one side of the coin. And on the other side of the coin, who are committed to the word of God and to prayer. But also, as we continue to build our church, our members and everyone who calls Christ Church your home church will also need to be committed to keeping the unity of the church, meeting the needs of the vulnerable, no matter their background. In other words, serving diakonia, one another. That's the one side of the coin. And to be committed to growing in the word of God and prayer. And so a thriving church is both and. Now, very briefly, that leads to part three, committed to Christ-likeness. Because ultimately, what this is saying is a church that flourishes and spreads is a church that is committed to serving one another, serving by caring for one another's physical needs, and serving by caring for one another's spiritual needs. And to do that, to do those twin things, is to be like Christ. Christ. Do you remember what it says? Jesus came not to be served, but to serve 
and to lay his life down. There's this great story in both Matthew chapter 20 and Mark chapter 10 where it says that. And the story before that, it says that two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, who are brothers, they come to Jesus and they ask him if they can be given positions of prestige, of greatness, of authority when Jesus' kingdom is realized. And they ask, can one of us sit on your right and one of us sit on your left when you come into your kingdom, when you're exalted? Put that another way, they want greatness. They want to be second and third in command of all of the kingdom. They want to be exalted. They want everyone to serve them. But they're okay with serving Jesus. He's number one. But they want everyone else, because they're numbers two and three, they want everyone else to serve them. And here's what Jesus says to them uh, and the other disciples. We'll look at it from Mark chapter 10. It says the same thing in both places. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in saying this, Jesus flips the script on what greatness actually is. He says, greatness is not being exalted, but being humbled. It's not being served, it's serving. And then he tells them why. And do you see that little word for at the start of verse 45 up there? When you see that word in the Bible, usually what comes after it is showing you the grounds or the reason for what came before. It's, it answers the question, why? And so to be great, you must serve. To be exalted, you must humble yourself. Why? Verse 45. For even, and then he says the Son of Man. Now that's a funny phrase, Son of Man. But that's actually one of the ways that Jesus referred to himself uh, throughout his, his ministry. And that phrase actually comes from the book of Daniel, where it describes this, this person as a son of man. And it's actually looking forward to when God's son would come and be exalted. And so it describes this person as a son of man like this in Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. He, the son of man, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So in other words, what we're talking about here when we say the Son of Man is the most exalted person to ever live. Authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations, all peoples of every language worshipping him. An everlasting dominion that will never end. And you have James and John who know the Son of Man passage in Daniel, they've heard Jesus refer to himself many times as the Son of Man, thinking, when he's exalted, we want to be exalted. We want some of the glory. We want some of the sovereignty. We want to be next to him while he's being worshipped. We want to be caught up in that. And so we have them saying, let one of us sit on your right and one on your left when that happens. And Jesus' res response is, be a servant. Humble yourself. Why? Back to Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so that Son of Man, the glorious one, the one deserving of worship and sovereignty and authority, 
he came not to be served, but to serve. And his ultimate service is to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, what's a ransom? A ransom is blood money. It's a price you pay to redeem somebody back from captivity. And this is precisely what Jesus Christ does when he goes to the cross. His death, his burial, is the ransom payment for our sins. And his resurrection from the dead is him leading a procession of people out of captivity to sin and death and hell and judgment. And so what is all of this getting at then? What is Luke trying to show us in Acts chapter 6 with this story about service and the word of God? What is Jesus showing his disciples when he says the way to greatness is to humble yourself? You are never more like Jesus, never more Christ-like than when you're serving. And if you've been hurt by a church in the past, it's likely that church was struggling to be like Christ, to serve in humility. Now, are we a perfect church where no one is ever going to be hurt, where no one's ever going to hurt you, perfectly humble, servants of all, always down on our knee? No, we're not that. Because we're made up of imperfect people. But this church actually has a constant reminder to be servants of one another in our name, Christ Church. In other words, we're both a church that belongs to Christ in our history, Christ apostrophe as Christ's church, but also a church that represents Christ, that's trying to be like Christ, a Christ-like church, Christ Church. And so because we have received the grace of Jesus, we also have grace with one another. Because Jesus is patient with us, we then are patient with one another. Ultimately, because Jesus served us and laid down his life for us, we serve and we lay down our lives for one another. That is how a church carries on for generations. That is how the very first church that was unbelievably diverse, with multiple nationalities, multiple languages, multiple ethnicities, multiple worldviews, ways of thinking, that is how they came together. That is how a movement started and spread across the world because the first church learned to be Christ-like, like him. And you're never more like him than when you're serving, either meeting a practical need or helping someone grow through prayer and the word of God. And when you're doing that, you are just like him. Now, very practically, if you want help to be able to do that in one way or another, to learn that, to, to just practice that, one simple step you could take today is on that connection card that we mentioned earlier, put your name and your phone number or an email, and in that comment section, just write the word serve. Just write the word serve. And this week, one of our staff team will get in touch, and we'll help you find a way to do that. That might be here in this church. It might be somewhere out in the community. But we want to be able to help you be more like Christ, to serve. And again, this is what I love about this book. <laughs> Luke highlights all the, all the dirty stories, all the brokenness in the church, shows us how they repair it. And, it. and as the church grew in their service of one another through practical needs and grew through helping one another grow in prayer and the word of God, verse 7, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests, a large number of unreachable people became obedient to the faith. 
And as we learn to serve and to love one another through practical means, through sharing in the word of God, may that be true of our church as well. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for this incredible example of a church that went through challenges and difficulties, something that could have divided them. And yet, in your kindness, in your kindness, Lord, you helped them to figure out how they could love and serve one another. Father, I pray that would be true of our church as well. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.